otherwise on SAFM. And starting today off with the theme of young people and working to create platforms of expression and opportunity for them, the Ndoni South Africa 2015 Culture Schools are currently taking place uh, around the country, I believe, until the 13th of July. So we have on the line Chairwoman Dr. Mtebu to tell us a little bit more about Ndoni and these uh, culture schools that are being held at the moment. Dr. Mtebu, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Kim, and I greet you and all the listeners at home as well. Thank you so much. I think let's start off with, if people don't know, what is Indoni all about? Uh, Kim, um, Indoni, we're an NPO. Uh, we have an, we're an organization that has national reach, but ideally what we do is we run youth programs um, with the basis of moral generation. So what we do really, it is about morals, it is about um, impacting on young people's lives, but we use culture and indigenous knowledge as a way to change their behavior. And more importantly, just to address all the social ills, because I think every social ill that is out there is actually affecting young people. So that is exactly what we do. And our slogan is, my heritage, my pride, and it's exactly that. It is about implanting pride in who they are and their identity and finding themselves as solutions rather than problems. Okay, so it's along the premise of if you know who you are and where you come from, you can uh, you can know better where you're wanting to go and you can achieve more with your life when you have a sense of sort of self. Absolutely, Kim. Okay. All right. So these culture schools uh, are happening. How long have culture schools been been going for? Well, we started the program in 2011. So this is actually our fourth year and we are growing as well. I mean, we have a culture school in each and every province throughout um, South Africa. But what we do, Kim, is we are more focused, because we are focused more at, around identity, we use culture as a strong tool and basis for that. So our culture schools, we've got 12, even though we've got nine provinces, but we've got 12 culture schools um, that is, you know, targeting just the major cultural groups in South Africa. Not to say that we're excluding others, but, uh, for example, in KZN, we would have its majority Zulu. So we'll have a culture school that talks about Zulu and Zulu culture. And that way it enables us to use the people around KZN who know the culture well, who are experts in the culture, to also come and impart their knowledge with the young people. And it's not just more about the teaching, about behavior. That's important, yes, because that's the basis of everything. But also there's a huge skill development element of that because when you would know that young people also complain a lot about work and unemployment, etc. So we are saying, I mean, culturally, you know, as, as Africans, we are the workers. We're not necessarily having to wait for someone to do something for us. So as in doing, we're trying to get rid of this dependency syndrome where young people are just waiting for somebody or government to give you something or a stipend. But we think do it yourself. Such that this year we've got a strong entrepreneurial program that we're doing with uh, business schools that come to the camp and teach young people about starting your own business. So at the same time, when we're teaching them about the skills like beadwork, pottery, weaving, uh, thatching, uh, leathery, those are all the skills which are taught at the camp. But at the same time, we're teaching them how can they then create business for themselves and for their communities as well. Okay, so is this something that, um, that that young people actually get recruited to come on, or do they act, do they have to actively apply to be part of these these culture schools? Um, Kim, luckily we are partners with SABC Radio Station, so they do a wonderful job in actually recruiting the young people to actually apply, um, and that is how it actually happens on our website. 
www.indoni.org, there's an application form there. So young people can go in there, get the application form, and apply. Now, we've got a strict rule because we are about morals, and respect is a huge part of that. You cannot apply yourself. Your parent has to give you permission. So your parent actually has to sign and give you that permission because I think also with us saying, you know, respect uh, yourself, but also respect your surroundings, respect your parents, and respect the hierarchy of who your parent is to you. There's certain things you cannot do without your parents' permission. So as much as young people like to come to the camp, we really want to know that the parent has actually agreed for you to come to the camp. But then also we send our application forms to municipality offices, the youth desk. Uh, we send them, you know, to any various, I mean, churches. We work with church organizations. So young people can always get application forms. But also they need to motivate us why they're a good candidate to be part of the culture school. And this really is invariably different, Kim. Sometimes you might find it's a child who, for example, says, you know what, I've been in a Model C school all my life and I have no idea who I am or of my culture and I'm needing to know more about who I am, you know. Um, sometimes it's a kid whom you, 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 you realize that this kid just needs to be taught these skills to better her environment or her community. So it varies. And we do have a lot of applications. Um, and I think also, Kim, because we've got the glamorous multicultural South Africa at the end, many young people want to come to the program because of that in mind. But ideally, you know, to us, it's more about what we're teaching and implanting on these young children to make them leaders of tomorrow, someone who's grounded in who they are, uh, more than just someone who's uh, um, beautiful and, and flashy. Yes. So, so, so connecting these young people with their culture and where they come from, does that also include then looking out and respecting other cultures? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, because that is a whole social cohesion element of that. I mean, you, you would know, Kim, especially as South Africans, and because of our past history, there, has this, there is this strong thing about I'm Kosa, I'm Zulu, I'm, I'm back. And that is the one thing we're trying to get rid of in Indoni, such that in one of the days there's an intercultural exchange where, for example, the vendor kids will learn everything about uh, baby kids or about Kosa or Swana so that they begin to respect each other rather than ridicule, you know, the next culture. You know, because if we don't understand, most of the time out of ignorance, we tend to judge something or fear it and, and we're ridiculous. So we're teaching these young kids, kids to be, to have that social cohesion element of it, but to respect the next culture, because that is very important. And when you respect, having respect for yourself and the next person is very important. It's a very important part of what we teach. And when you said you refer, you're referring to them um, staying at a, at a camp, and I'm seeing these kids getting together and sitting around a campfire and, and kind of yes. living in te- Am I getting the right sense of things? Is that how oh, it works? Yes, you oh, okay. are. Yes, you are. It's a place where there's, you know, they forget about their phones and their, you know, their, their social media because it's an environment where there's no TV and um, all these other distractions, it's, you know. In the mornings, our setup is such that in the mornings, it's a formal teaching. For example, um, let's say we teach them about respect and manners, how to speak, social etiquette, how does a young girl behave, how does a young boy behave in public or, or otherwise. In the afternoon, it's more of a skills element. When we're teaching them things like, you know, for example, the African beads, the different colors, what are the meanings and stuff like that. But in the evening, that's the creative part. So they create their own television using what they were taught today and we then promote them to use the circumstances where they are now in their lives, in their community, so that they're able to teach us what is happening out there. But then we say, use what you've been taught today. Use, you know, your culture.
working identity to solve those problems that you are in. So in the evenings, there's lots of you know talks around the fire, lots of storytelling, but a whole lot of performing because it's important to teach them that. And I think that us passing on that knowledge of performance onto them, you know, with young people also, it's so important to know how to perform because that actually helps them to sometimes express yourself using your body. It's distressing also to perform, especially when there's a drum next to you and it can really go a long way into just not just entertaining, but also just helping them just to distress emotionally. Mm. How many kids actually take part in, in these camps and what age are you are you looking at? Nationally, Kim, we take on 2,400 per year. Now, um, we, we have a strict policy of not more than 200 per camp because we've got a 1 is to 18 or at most 1 is to 20 teacher-to-child ratio because we feel that what is important is the quality of education rather than the quantity. Because also these young kids who come to that camp, that particular camp, we are actually planting them to actually be seized in their communities and to be agents of change. Then go out there, call other young kids. You know, they are then trained so that they're able to train other young children in their community. So for camp, we take in 200. But remember, I said we take we do 12 different camps nationally. So then that actually gives us a total number of 2,400 young kids nationally. Uh, we take them from the age of 12 up until 25. Okay. Now we, we we do say 12, but because it's important that at the stage you start speaking about menstruation, about puberty, about body changes, what to expect, and etc. With the very young ones, and then it goes all the way up to the age of of 25. And these camps take place once a year, is that right? Yes, our camps. Uh, no, actually not. We actually involve them throughout all the holidays because as you know, camp during the holidays. That is when you say young kids then just get prone to doing all other activities, which is not good behavior, so to speak. So during all the camps, we, we do take them in. But uh, mainly during the winter school, that's our longest camp. Uh, during the September, October uh, school holidays, also we take them in there. But that's the time when more it's a graduation for them. They've been with us for the whole year. Those who've done well and who've done great things in the communities, we award them. Um, there's a cultural parade that happens in the streets of Durban where each and every culture is dressed in their own year and they're performing their beautiful performances. So they really love that. And then, of course, there's the culture in South Africa, which also happens at the end of everything where what then happens, Tim, is since we've got a culture school in each culture, we then choose one girl and one boy who best represent that culture, whom we call ambassadors. We call them indonis because then they best represent this food, this black food. Um, that we call Indoni. So in each culture, we choose a boy and a girl who are best examples of their culture since they've been told what it is to be you and that identity. And now with all those different cultures at the end, we've got 24 contestants who then celebrate who they are at the Indoni the cultural South Africa pageant, which this year is happening on the 10th of October at the Durban ICC. Oh, fantastic. So the public can go and actually experience that and meet the kids. Okay, fantastic. So I think that the, the, the camps that are taking the, the culture schools that are currently on, it ends at, on the 13th of July. So if people want to know more about the next camp that's coming up or want to get in contact with Ndoni, it's best to go to the website. Yes, absolutely. They can go to our website, Tim. But also, we generally have an open day, just um, a day before the camp closes, so which is going to be the 11th of, um, of, of July. We have an open day, so we allow public to come and just see what the kids have been doing. The kids are their own teachers that day, teaching the public um, the different performances, but also for parents just to come.
come and see what the kids have gone through. And um, also that's when we have our award ceremony, when we choose that particular boy and girl who best represent that culture, who's going to be then taken forward to be part of the Miss Culture of South Africa. Fantastic. So if people want to know more, they can visit njoni.co.za and keep your eyes and ears out for the open day on the 11th of July. Otherwise, go and check out more information on Ndoni. That's njoni.co.za. Dr. Mtembu, thank you so much for joining us today. We will chat soon, I'm sure. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you for having me. Keep well. Again, if you want to find out more about the Indoni SA 2015 Culture Schools or what's coming up perhaps next year, visit indoni.co.za. Otherwise, on SAFM. Well, there is cause for some serious celebration as 17 young dancers are about to jet off to represent South Africa at the World Championships of Performing Arts in Los Angeles in July. I think they're leaving this weekend, actually. They are the Nieuwe Graskoe Trappers from Bush Amin's Kloof Wilderness Reserve in Cedarburg. And we have their manager, Flora Smith, on the line to share a bit of their story and also to rally a bit of support behind these kids before they leave. Flora, so lovely to have you on the show. Good day, Kim, and good day, listeners. Thank you for having us. So you must be super excited if you're heading off this weekend, am I right? Yes, we're departing from Cape Town Airport on Monday morning. Um, We'll be jetting off at about half past 11, but we'll be at the airport from about 9 o'clock. Okay, fantastic. And people can come and show some support there, I'm sure. Yes, yes, and we might just give them a little show before we we jet off to to Los Angeles. Fabulous. Okay, well, let's go back to the beginning, I guess. Maybe you should give us some background to the dance group. When did they start? Who's involved? The Real Dance Project in the Vipital community is um, one of Bushman Scrooge's initiatives. Um, And me being, coming from a a background of dance, um, I was very happy to take on the project. Um, two groups were started in, in 2012, um, the original group, the Niva Graskauer Trappers, and they are all kids that were schooling um, in Vipital itself. Some of them are now in high school, which schools in Can William, which is one of the, the bigger towns close by. Um, and in 2013, they became the Arctic of Fear uh, traditional real dance champions. And in 2014, they um, came home with the same trophy. We then decided to take um, this dance form to the next level and enter them for the South African Championships of Performing Arts. And we entered the reel in the ethnic folk dance category where they then in 2014 and this year won gold um, in the category. They also won the Grand Champion Award for Best Group Performance at the National Championships. And then in this qualified themselves for the South African team to take part at the World Championships in July this year. Okay, so maybe just talk us through the, the specific dance form. What does it look like? What's, what's a little, give us a bit of the history to it. The real dance is better known as one of the oldest dance forms um, in South Africa. It dates back to the Khoi and the sand people that used to do ritual dancing around the fire. Um, it became very popular in the 30s, 40s, and the 50s as a farm workers' dance um, um, where they used to court the ladies, the men and the ladies used to court each other. So um, the men would imitate animals like the baboon or the springbuck or the snake um, to get the attention of the ladies. The ladies would imitate house tasks like folding linen, like baking bread, um, to get the attention of 
the men. It is a very happy dance. Um, it's, a, it's, it's only danced at celebrations like weddings, um, over Easter weekends, New Year, um, birthday parties. And today it's still very much danced in the local community um, when they have these celebrations. The real, um, the footwork, if you if it dates back, dates back to the coin the sand, very fast uh, footwork, um, traditionally danced in the sand. Um, okay, so you get that lovely today, sort of kick up. Today, traditionally, when we're competing um, at the traditional competition, you have to have those traditional elements part of your choreography. Um, the circle needs to be in your choreography, which symbolizes when they used to dance around the fire, dating back hundreds of years. Um, so today, um, still very much a courting dance. Um, and in t 2006, the Arctic Fear revised this dance, um, which was almost um, dying out. Started with six groups in 2006, and the annual Real Dance Championships that is hosted by the Arctic Fear is now 106 groups strong. So it's grown from 2006 up to now. There's lots of interest in the Western and Northern Cape um, with this traditional dance. And for us, the music that goes along with the dance? The music that goes along with the dance is traditional real music. Um, it's a very short strum of the guitar, which gives the rhythm. Um, traditionally, uh, the traditional instruments um, that makes music for real dancing is normally the guitar, um, the banjo, and the accordion. Um, but nowadays you would find lead guitars um, in the band as well. You would find drum kits that gives more rhythm. Um, so it's a lot livelier. Um, and I think that, that draws the attention of the children, you know, lively music, um, a fast movement of the feet, um, synchronized movements um, that the boys and the girls do together. So it's become very popular over the last seven, eight years. That's great because it's, it's lovely to see young people uh, embracing more traditional forms of, of performance as well. And I, and I think it, it also is uh, reflective in their costumes that they wear. Yes, absolutely. Very bright colours, um, waistcoats, coats, and then obviously the red uh, felt schooner as as uh, an icon um, in the real dance. You know, when you see somebody with red felt schooner, you would immediately ask them the question: Are you doing real dancing? <laughs> okay. So, so maybe just tell us a little bit more about what you guys are going to be up to in LA. Obviously, you're going to be performing at the World Championships of Performing Arts. Um, what else are you going to be doing over there? Um, we're leaving on Monday, um, and then we arrive on Tuesday. Wednesday is a day at leisure, so we're going to um, visit the uh, Hollywood Wall of Fame of all movie stars. That's part of our trip. Uh, the next day, we are forming part of a dance boot camp where we will be joining 52 countries in in a boot camp, so dancers are more than welcome to join the tap boot, uh, boot camp or they can join Latin American or ballet or whatever form of dance they want to join. Um, that's going to be a phenomenal experience for the children. And then on Friday is the opening ceremony and then it's competition time. 
for the rest of the week, uh, through the weekend into the next week, and then we still have a visit to Disney World as well as Universal Pictures when we're on the other side there. Um, but our main aim is competition, competition, competition. Yes. The real dance um, has entered in the ethnic folk dance category, um, so we'll be competing against other countries' traditional dances. Um, then also there's two other dance genres that is danced by the real dancers. We have the five boys in the group that is doing a new dance genre that we've created with tap shoes. They're doing normal, traditional, real dancing in tap shoes. And uh, you need to see it to believe it. You would think that these kids have been training tap dancing since they were five years old. They've only been dancing in tap shoes for the last four months. Wow. And they have walked away with a gold medal at the national championships. It's just amazing. Sure. So there's been a lot of hard work, but also a lot yes. of play. And then we yeah. also have a gumbo dance routine that is also qualified for the world championships. Um, but our main focus is on what is proudly South African, the real dance. Um, we've qualified first for the South African team in 2014 um, with just the real, but we went to the national championships again this year, and we've qualified in the three genres. The band that leads all these dance groups has also entered in the instrumental category, and they have qualified themselves in three categories, in the jazz, the open category, and the original category with real dance music. So we have the band also that has won a couple of awards, and then we have a guitarist that's in the band that has um, qualified himself in three solo categories. So that's all in all, on. ten categories that the team of 17 members is going to represent in Los Angeles. And how can people stay in touch with you, support you, check out what you're up to in L.A., just very quickly? Um, they can go onto our Facebook pages. Um, we have Die Nieuwe Graskoe Trappers on Facebook, Die Nieuwe Graskoe Trappers, and we'll be posting on a daily basis, and they could see what, what we're up to. Um, even our postings, the last... Uh, few months that's on there and we post on a daily basis as well rehearsals practice countdown um funding appeals all of that Lois, everything is on there best of luck we wish you really every success while you're over there and we can't wait to catch up with you on the other side and we will be rooting for you thank you so much for joining us today thank you so much and thank you for having us that was Flores smith he's the manager of Diniva Graskoa trappers and you can find them on facebook what's well, one thirty? it's time for the headlines with norm sam Drulli now Otherwise, on SAFM. Thanks, Numsa. You are listening to Otherwise Talking Women here on uh, SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Well, I was in northern Mozambique recently, and I was working with community radio stations over there. But I spent 10 days in a place called Katandika in the Manika province, bordering Zimbabwe. And the biggest challenge for me and my recorder was the language barrier, as nobody, nobody spoke English. I was able to talk to some young people through an informal translator, but I also met a Peace Corps volunteer who was living and working as a teacher in Katandika. For two years. And I thought I'd play you a clip today of our conversation about what she experienced as a young woman living in rural, rural Mozambique, as well as the issues she witnessed facing the young girls she taught at the local school. My name is Joanna Farley. Um, I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana. 
um, and then I went to school in New York City, so I sort of call both of those places home at this point. And I landed here in Katandika, province of Manica, Mozambique, by way of Peace Corps. Here in Mozambique, we have an education program and we have a health program. You have really no say in what country you go to when you apply for Peace Corps. I just told them that I didn't want anywhere cold, and Mozambique is where I ended up. And what, what were your friends' and family's uh, reactions to you heading off to Mozambique? Okay, I will say that I was working a job at a bike shop before coming here, and the, <laughs> when I told my boss that I was leaving to come to Mozambique, he said, isn't that where Blood Diamond was filmed? Be careful, girl. So I guess that was that is one example. Most people and other people like I would, people would come through the bike shop and I'd be like, oh, I'm leaving. I'm going to Africa. And they'd be like, you're doing what? Why? Um, so I think it's more confusion and less like, oh, my gosh, like you're going to be hurt out there. And people also don't know where Mozambique is. One person was like, isn't that on Long Island, which is a part of New York City, sort of. And I will say, actually, when I was applying for Peace Corps, I hadn't told my parents that I was applying. And on the day that I found out that I was sort of moving to the next step, my father was talking about how, uh, you know, they send these people out to Africa when they can just go down to Louisiana. Like, New Orleans is still struggling. Like, that's me. Yeah, I was thinking about you and how it's, it's difficult to, when you want to go and help out somewhere, it's difficult. Like, where, where do you put yourself, especially as a young person? Also, you, you want to travel and you want to see the rest of the world. Where you yeah, totally. I mean, and that's exactly how I feel. Like, at this point, I'm trying to go back home to New Orleans and, like, use what I've learned here to do exa- as much as I can to work in that city because that is, like, that's sort of where my heart is. That's, like, where I feel most connected to the community. But I felt that it was, like, very important for me to, like, get out of my realm of comfort, to, like, go to a totally different place and challenge myself to live in a place that was very different from what I knew and live in a different manner altogether. And I think that it's definitely been very eye-opening and very helpful for me to do this. What was it like for those first couple of weeks, those, those first months? Actually, when we arrived, so we replaced volunteers. So when we arrived, our house was disgusting. And there was no water. They had left, like, one tiny container of water. Um, we didn't know where to get water. We didn't know, you know, this house was just so gross, and we wanted to put everything in order. But we just, I mean, water was pretty necessary. Um, we had to figure out where the market was and buy food. And so the lady who came and showed us our house, came to give us our keys, one of the secretaries here, she took one look at the house and was like, oh my gosh, you guys need help. So she was like, I'm coming back. So she left and about an hour later, maybe five women came with a big bucket of water, each on their head. And they just tore our house apart, cleaned it from top to bottom. And that was like actually a very cool way to be introduced to Katantika. They were so friendly and they were so excited to meet us. That was sort of a good way to get started. We actually had a strange situation where two kids from my training group were in a really bad car accident and died. And so that was also a very strange way to like start your time here. Because in that first week, you don't really have friends here. You don't really know why you're here because your job hasn't even started yet. To consider dying out here like was really just like, what's the point? Like, why? Why am I putting myself through this? You know, why am I so far away from my friends and family? I should really just go home. How did you get your head around that? I don't know. I guess sort of just like pushing through it and also really working like I talked to the other volunteers from my training group all the time, which really helped. You know, there's a good, there's a really strong network of volunteers in the country. And so, and they bring you in in training groups. So our training group was one of like 50 kids. And language when you arrived, could you speak Portuguese? Mm, Not a word. So I lived with this woman and her three daughters, which was awesome. 
because it was also, I have three sisters. It sort of paralleled, you know, where I was at. So when you live in a home state, it turns out you really have to speak Portuguese. But then in addition to that, they also, for the first, like, two weeks of our time in Mozambique, from 7 a.m. till 5, we would just be in Portuguese class. And they had these professors come out from Maputo. They were fantastic. So living with these women in your homestay, um, I suppose you, you got a, a good sense of a good sense of what what the challenges are, what it's like to be a woman in Katandika. I feel like I don't even know the half of it, honestly. How I, I feel that it's like an enormous like downgrade from what I had in America. It is so frustrating to me. For example, here at our school, there are about five other women professors out of a group of about 60. And most of the professors here are young men who like to get drunk. I talked to my girls, for example, you know, when I was first starting to meet like the, the Reddish girls that I work with, Reddish is the name of the girls group. Um, we were talking about how many siblings they all had. And one girl said, oh, I have seven brothers. And I was like, oh my God, seven brothers. But all the other girls were like, that's so many dishes to wash because nobody would imagine that the boys would do the dishes. That was their, like, first conclusion. Um, and so there's just, like, constantly that underlying, like, like they were saying, like, the girls, they, they don't go to school. It's not, and they don't go to school both because, like, they get married early, they get pregnant early. So many students from here, you hear about them in eighth and ninth grade, like, getting pregnant and having to drop out of school. I could go on and on and on and on about this, actually, because I, I think it's really shocking. Sophia said there is, like, a cabinet here for violated women. But I think at the same time, there is sort of a stigma about speaking up about things like that. I think a lot of women here do get beaten by their husbands or they run into some nasty situation and it's considered sort of eccentric if they were to sort of step forward and talk about it. That's my sense of it. You know, it could, could not actually be like that. And I think that there is an awareness, especially there is an awareness about women and about like how they're not generally so equal, especially amongst my students. Um, I work with one group that's co-ed, boys and girls. And the boys we talked to, we had this session where the girls sat in the middle and they talked about what they felt was hard and what they felt was great about being a girl. And the boys just sat around and listened. And then we switched. Um, and then to hear the reflections afterwards, you know, the boys were like, there's so many opportunities given to women here. Like sometimes we even feel like because they're seen as unequal that we don't get as many opportunities which is crazy, first of all. I think they don't really understand. Whereas people might go to their way to be like, well, let's make sure that there's one woman and also a man, that on a daily basis, the women get treated as less than men. On a daily basis, they deal with so much more harassment and just so much less respect. And there's this whole other aspect now of men giving girls like presents and stuff, and then that turning into like the basis for a sexual relationship, and then the girls getting pregnant. And that's just like this whole other system that feeds off of, I guess, like, again, sort of the, I don't want, the poverty of Africa, you know, where these girls, yeah, they want a cell phone. Here's this guy telling them, here, take my cell phone, take my really fancy, like, iPhone. And so they'll take it, and then that's that. So it's, I think there is an awareness here, and people are working to make it better, but there's also different elements now that are entering the picture. And I think that's going to sort of, people are going to sort of have to stay constantly aware and, like, constantly changing their plan of attack work for women. The girls here, are they, are they interested in how, what it's like in America? Do they, do they, are they aware that it might be different? They're they so asking? interested. They're so interested. I mean, you know, to start, I mean, it's crazy to them that I'm 24 and that I don't have kids. I love talking to my girls about that kind of stuff. 
telling them, like, there's a, there's a different world out there, too. Like, we can get there. I suppose, I mean, just talking to those two now, they want to be a doctor, they want to be a lawyer. There seems to be a, a, a rumbling of, of young ones really wanting to, to, to push it. So every year we have these conferences. My group here is one of a, a network of groups in Manica, all over Mozambique. And so we'll, we have this conference where we bring together the girls, we bring together the counterparts that we work with. And we work with some really, really fantastic women. I mean, these women have amazing stories, and they're so strong, and they've just, like, come out on top in every way. And it's awesome that they take it upon themselves to, like, mentor these girls. And so, you know, at the end of the conference this year, we give them these certificates, and one of the counterparts went into this long speech about how, you know, year after year she sees these girls come, they're so full of hope, they're so excited, and we give them all this information, and they... You know, we encourage them to stay independent and all of this kind of stuff. And then year after year, she hears about one getting pregnant and then another getting married and stopping and dropping out of school. And she was just talking about how important it is to really listen and to really believe in yourself and not fall, fall victim to these kinds of things that are just constantly around the corner. And it, a lot of what we do in those conferences actually are trying to predict, like, what are the barriers that are going to come up? How can we encourage you guys to go around those barriers to avoid them at all costs? I mean, there's definitely, there are forces at work. You know, I think to myself, well, how can I just, like, go back to America and, like, take some sort of job where I work in the scope of America after, like, living here and, like, feeling very connected to this place? Like, how could I not take some sort of job where I, I continue to, to have a relationship with any country in Africa, I guess? But specifically Mozambique, because now I feel a little bit more, like, this is my home turf, you know? Is the education, I mean, we're sitting in a really beautiful school, um, and you've mentioned the hospital as well. So is there a good educational system? Is there a good health care here? What's your sense of things? Again, education is something I could go on for hours about. This is like a respected school, I guess. But, for example, we just got a new director, and he, they just transfer you around, and our director refused multiple times to come to Katadika because it's a little bit more, it's not in a city, it's not a huge school. And, I mean, I feel like the quality of education is all based on the teachers. And there are some great teachers here, but there are also teachers that just leave in the middle of the day to go get drunk and just don't go to class. Or for the, the first day of the trimester just now, I was one of two professors here. Two. It was ridiculous. I mean, so it's just like when you have that sort of attitude of like, well, that really hurts the quality of education. And I think it trickles down to the students. The students start having this attitude of like, well, I guess I don't really need to go to class, you know. Every level from the top down chips away at the quality of an education that these kids can get. Or then, for example, like I, I teach as well as I can to the curriculum, which is sort of a ridiculous curriculum. I'm supposed to be teaching about the importance of coconut trees right now, this week, even though there are no coconut trees here in Katadika, <laughs> much less really Manika. I don't know. Anyways, so I, I, you know, I did my best to teach the curriculum, but then at the end of each trimester, we receive a provincial test. And that provincial test could test them on anything, really. It's supposed to be for the curriculum, but the questions... There are often questions that my students don't even have a fighting chance of answering, even if I had gone through the curriculum perfectly. And so that's just another thing that would, like, you know, that demoralizes students. That doesn't, that doesn't really make them want to work very hard if tests that somebody else wrote, you know? Mozambique in general, do you think, do you feel positive? Do you feel like people are positive about it? And do you feel positive about where it's heading? Do you see development? Do you see the growth? I mean, there's all these headlines about how, um, the, the, you know, the boom in Mozambique and how good this is for, for the place and the people. 
the reality behind that in, in your opinion and your experience of things here? I really think it could go either way at this point. I mean, like something that I feel very strongly about is that like I feel like I'm watching people sort of destroy sort of the natural environment of Mozambique. You know, like people are logging like crazy up and down Manika and up and Tet. Just you see all of these trucks go by with tons and tons of logs. You know, up in Tet with these mines and stuff. People aren't totally happy with it. The mines don't always give them exactly what they deserve, the people up there. But I do think that there are some really good people. Like, I know some really good people that are doing some really good work and really getting places. So, you know, when you focus on that, yeah, it looks awesome. You know, Mozambique's got a lot going for it. But I also think that if the corruption gets a hold of it, that it could not. Yeah, I mean, I asked my girls. They feel, in terms of HIV, what they feel is, like, the most relevant risk for their generation. And they said this. They said the, this receiving presence from older men because it is just so common and, like, all of their friends sort of do it and then it leads, they know that it leads to these sticky situations. And also, like, teachers here often, like, end up having relationships with students. And that also, I mean, like, that's also, like, a... It was, like, a huge thing that we talked about at our Reddish conference this year. It's like, well, what if a professor that you know his wife is out of town asks you to come over to his house alone and you have an 8 and you need a 10 in his class, what are you going to do? Just like you know it's sketchy. And across all of these girls, like across the province of Monica, like immediately we're like, oh my gosh, yes, that's happened to me before. You know, it's, it was like mind-boggling. <laughs> you know, my neighbor is sleeping with one of my students, which I don't approve of. He's not her teacher, but it's still like, like a power relationship that like shouldn't really happen. On the other hand, it's like a lot of the teachers are so young. They're like 26, 27. Students are 18, 19, 20. By the time they get to 12th grade, they could be 22. You know, the age difference isn't huge. And so if it was outside of the school, you would think, well, I guess it's not that bad. But somehow... Well, that was Joanna Farley, who worked as a Peace Corps volunteer for two years in the rural town of Katindika in Mozambique, just giving us an insight into her experience of the people and the place. Well, just recapping our guests today, if you want to find more, uh, find out more about the Indoni South African 2015 culture schools that are going on at the moment, you can visit indoni.co.za. That's indoni.co.za. You can find out about the camps that they, they hold for young people across the country in all nine provinces. I think it was 12 camps that they do. And you can find out more about next year's uh, winter school holidays as well. So that's indoni.co.za. And then if you want to get behind and support these 17 youngsters, these dancers that are, that are coming out of Cedarburg and they're going to L.A. to perform at the World Championships of Performing Arts in Los Angeles, they leave on Monday. You can catch them at the airport at about 9 o'clock. Between 9 and 11, they'll be there if you want to go and show your support and wish them good luck. Their manager is Floris Smith, and he joined us to give us a little bit more background into the real dance that they're going to be performing. And if you want to also maybe lend a bit of support uh, or follow their journey in LA, you can uh, get them on Facebook. Their group is called Diniva Grasco Trappers. That's Diniva Grasco Trappers on Facebook. And they're going to be there for the good next two weeks, so it would be well worth following their uh, journey there. And I think you can also find more information on bushmanscloof.co.za as that's the area that they are from. I think there's a gallery of photographs where you can see the very expressive, very colorful dance form that they perform, which is the real dance. So that's Diniva Grasco Trappas, and you can find them on Facebook. 
Well, what's coming on, uh, coming up on afternoon talk with Ashraf Garda just after the two o'clock news? The big question today is how do we improve PhD employability in corporate South Africa? And then also they look at female, female entrepreneurs recognized for building a foundation for South Africans youngsters. And, uh, business mentoring as well. Uh, they ask the question, is owning a franchise labeling you as an entrepreneur? And in, in the spotlight to today, Sisa Hawana, she's actor and presenter of the new national Lotto. She'll be in the spotlight with Ashraf Garda this afternoon, just after the two o'clock news on Afternoon Talk.